Welcome to the LA Public Health Podcast for Wednesday, September 23rd, 2020. I'm Steve Baldwin. And today's show includes comments from LA County Board of Supervisors Chair Pro Tem Hilda Solis, followed by an update on COVID-19 led by Dr. Barbara Ferrer, Director of the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Thank you for listening. And to keep up with our department, you can follow us across all social media at LA Public Health or visit our website, publichealth.lacounty.gov. There's a lot to cover today, so let's get right to it. And we'll start with a welcome from Supervisor Solis. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us at today's press briefing. Today, I'd like to discuss two essentials for our communities, both of which have been challenging to come by for many among us during the COVID-19 pandemic. New research released today by the USC Dornsife Public Exchange, led by Dr. Kayla DeHay, Assistant Professor of Preventive Medicine at USC, provides the first comprehensive analysis of the COVID-19 pandemic's impact on food insecurity in Los Angeles County. The USC team worked in close coordination with our county's emergency food security branch under a strategic partnership. Food insecurity refers to disruptions in food access and regular eating because of limited money or other resources. It's often associated with hunger, but it also leads to many negative physical and mental health outcomes in children and adults. USC's research identified several important findings. During the first four full months of the pandemic, one in four LA County households experienced food insecurity. That's an estimated 873,000 households. The majority of adults who experience food insecurity anytime between April and July are low income, female, Latino, black, or 18 through 40 years of age. Major risk factors include having a low household income, being unemployed, and being a single parent. The unprecedented rates of food insecurity created by the pandemic are improving. They peaked in April through May 2020 at 26% and declined to 10% through June to July. However, they remain significantly higher than pre-pandemic levels and are very concerning. Low-income populations and communities of color who are being hardest hit by the pandemic are also those suffering the most from sustained food insecurity. Food insecurity is known to compromise the quality of people's diets. And this research found that people who experienced food insecurity during the pandemic had unhealthy changes to their diet. This is likely to worsen existing food and health disparities. Additionally, high-income households rarely experience food insecurity, but the surge in food insecurity during the pandemic has affected this demographic as well. One in five households that experienced food insecurity during the pandemic were not low income. However, there's also some good news. The research indicated that food and financial assistance programs appear to help people transition from food insecurity to food security during the pandemic. Many food assistance programs have been launched, adapted, or expanded to address food insecurity during this crisis. For example, the county's Elder Nutrition Program has more than doubled the number of meals it provides per month. CalFresh enrollment has also increased. Importantly, the study found that among households who experienced food insecurity at the beginning of the pandemic, those who were enrolled in CalFresh were more likely to become food secure by July than those who weren't enrolled. 
We already knew that CalFresh was a critical food safety net for low-income families, and this research shows just how important it is to get households who are eligible for CalFresh enrolled into the program. Within the immigrant community, many are concerned about CalFresh and the public charge, as you may have seen or heard stories about this. But let me be clear, public charge does not affect all immigrants. Refugees, asylees, survivors of trafficking, domestic violence, and other humanitarian immigrants are not affected. If you are unsure about your circumstances, you can contact your immigration attorney or the Office of Immigrant Affairs at 1-800-593-8222 or visit oia.lacounty.gov to be connected to a free or low-cost immigration attorney. Other food programs like WIC or Meals for Seniors and Students are not considered a public charge. Please visit the county's food resources website at covid19.lacounty.gov food to learn more about the variety of food resources available to L.A. County residents. The county will continue to expand its food assistance programs this fall, starting with increasing the number of food distribution events held in partnership with the L.A. Regional Food Bank, for two to three each week. Additionally, the county is using the USC's studies findings to inform the development of a COVID food assistance grant program, which will fund community organizations that are providing additional forms of food assistance to people in need affected by the pandemic. Details on the program will be available soon. You know, throughout the pandemic, childcare programs have remained open and serving families. Currently, over 4,000 licensed childcare programs are open in LA County. Childcare is the backbone of our economy, and parents seeking childcare are facing financial hardships as the economy starts to recover. On July 21st, the LA County Board of Supervisors approved $15 million of CARES Act funding for childcare vouchers to serve several essential workers and low income families. This funding will provide 5,000 low-income families and essential workers with childcare through December 30th of 2020. I want to thank the LA County Department of Public Health's Office of Advancement of Early Care in Education and in partnership with the Child Alliance for, of Los Angeles, who is leading this effort. LA County has a strong system of agencies that can process applications for vouchers and connect families to ch childcare. Eligible families must be either essential workers or low-income working families. Families who are eligible include parents who work in health care services, emergency services, food and agriculture, transportation, critical manufacturing, and a range of other essential services and other low-income families working in the business sectors. Families seeking child care may apply for a voucher by completing an online application at ccala.net. And for further information or assistance, you may call 888-922-CHILD, C-H-I-L-D, or 888-922-4453. Once the family completes the online application, it is automatically routed to a local partner agency for processing. Once approved, families will be able to use the voucher with any licensed child care program or trust line approved license exempt provider, family, friend, neighbor in L.A. County. And I want to thank the Department of Public Health for setting up this program along with our partner, the Child Care Alliance of Los Angeles. And to all the essential workers providing child care, we thank you. If you need child care, please consider this program. It was created to serve you. Thank you. And with that, uh, we will now hear from Dr. Barbara Ferrer. 
Uh, thank you so much, Supervisor Solis and the entire Board of Supervisors. Uh, your commitment to protecting the health of all residents across LA County, including those who are at greatest risk, has been an inspiration and a guiding force for all of us. And good afternoon, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, today, I'm going to provide uh, an, an update on the indicators that we're using to understand how well we do as a county to slow the spread of COVID-19 and what we know from our past experiences about the factors that influence the numbers of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths across both the entire population and among those groups that are disproportionately impacted by, by the virus. Uh, we have made a lot of progress reducing transmission in LA County since we experienced that surge in cases, hospitalizations, and deaths starting in mid-July. And as we consider our future reopenings, we're going to use the lessons we learned from our past and the community transmission indicators to guide decisions regarding reopening sectors and permitting uh, additional activities. When we move forward on our recovery journey and additional sectors reopen, it will remain important to understand how increased intermingling among non-household members affects community transmission of this virus. And let's start with a review of our recovery met metrics, um, which we follow every week to understand how we're slowing the spread of COVID-19. And as you can see uh, from our first slide here, um, these are daily reported cases from April through this week. Um, and you can see on here that our cases um, started dropping significantly from the beginning of August through the start of September, so that now we've been seeing below 1,000 cases per day. Uh, this is a similar number to what we saw if you look on this table uh, in early May, and that was before we started our reopenings. Uh, we have seen, uh, and you can see this sort of at the tail end of the trend line, a slight increase in cases recently, uh, which we're watching closely, especially because these increases are happening after the Labor Day weekend. I'll take the next slide. Um, this slide shows uh, our percent of test positivity or the percentage of tests um, that are done and come back positive. The test positivity rate is influenced by how much community transmission is happening and the availability of widespread testing. And you can see this clearly uh, on this trend line. At the beginning of the pandemic, when we had very limited testing capacity, tests were prioritized only for those people who were sick, and our test positivity rate was super high. It was at 16%. Under the safer at home orders and increased test capacity, our test positivity rate dropped from mid-April through May. With reopenings, we saw increases through July in test positivity rates, and then as we reclosed sectors, more people took precautions, we doubled our testing capacity, we've seen that our test positivity rate has dropped again. Um, and you can see that the test positivity rate has fallen significantly from an average about 8% in July when we were peaking in terms of our case numbers to about 3% in this early part of September. We'll take the next slide. We do continue to track the daily number of people with COVID-19 that are hospitalized so we can understand the impact of COVID-19 on the healthcare system. Similar to the previous uh, two charts, there has been a continued decline 
in the number of people hospitalized for COVID-19 since the end of July. We've been below 1,000 hospitalized patients uh, for most of September. And recently, LA County is averaging about 750 hospitalized patients per day. These numbers of daily hospitalizations are slightly lower than our numbers in early April, and they reflect in part better treatments that result in shorter lengths of hospital stays. Next slide. Um, when we review the daily deaths from COVID-19, we're reminded that changes in the number of deaths typically lags behind changes that we see in our cases and hospitalization numbers. Uh, on this chart, you can see that the spike in cases we experienced in early July led to an extended increase in deaths from late July through much of August. And again, though we're very pleased to see that deaths are falling, we remain vigilant knowing that if cases increase as a result of Labor Day activities, we may again see both more hospitalizations and unfortunately an increase in deaths in the coming weeks. Now I want to go to the next slide. Um, our recovery metrics help us understand how to best move forward uh, on our recovery journey. Uh, and this recovery journey is in part dictated by the state's blueprint for a safer economy, which provides us with a tiered framework that places counties in one of four tiers, depending on two metrics that measure the level of community transmission. Options for sector reopenings and permitted activities are aligned with each tier. And as a reminder, this tier shows us that the metric thresholds uh, that are set by the state are then used to determine when counties are able and eligible to move to uh, a new tier. You can move up in tiers, which, in, which would uh, indicate that you're reducing community transmission, but you also can move down in tiers if after you've seen a decline in community transmission, you actually start seeing another increase in community transmission. Uh, and although LA County currently remains in tier one with widespread community uh, disease transmission, the metrics posted by the state yesterday uh, indicate that we've reduced community transmission enough to begin qualifying for a possible move to tier two. This data that's used to calculate uh, the metric that you're seeing here, um, it represents case and test numbers from the week of September 6th through September 12th. So there's about a 10-day lag here. Our adjusted daily case rate for this period dropped to seven new cases per 100,000 residents. And the test, uh, the test positivity percent also dropped to 2.8. So you can see we qualify now by meeting the metric in tier two for our daily case rate and for tier three for our positivity rate. But I wanna note, if you look on the state's dashboard, you'll see that LA County remains in tier one. And this is because we cannot move to tier two until we sustain these numbers that you're seeing here or the numbers continue to decline for at least two consecutive weeks. Unfortunately, we did see an increase in our cases last week. We had four days where we were above 1,000 cases each day. So we're not sure that we'll have another week where our adjusted case, daily case rate is at or below seven new cases per 100,000 residents. 
but we are heartened that LA County has met the thresholds that allow us to see our progress and in the future move to tier two. Uh, we will continue to closely monitor our data so that we can understand how to best effectively continue to slow the spread of COVID-19. But we are paying attention to the impact of both the Labor Day holiday, the reopening of schools for high need students, and the reopening of hair salons for indoor operations. We will be working with the board uh, in the upcoming days to make data-informed decisions about all of the permitted options while we're in tier one for reopening other sectors, and that includes nail salons for indoor operations. I'm so grateful to everyone here in the county, our residents, our workers, and our businesses who have played their part in slowing the spread of COVID-19. I'll take the next slide. Um, I do wanna give you an update on highly impacted groups that continue to experience disproportionate case hospitalization and death rates. This graph shows over time COVID-19 cases by race and ethnicity. These trend lines do show us that our cases have been decreasing across all groups and we're also happy to see that the gaps are starting to close. At the mid-July peak, average daily cases among Latino, Latina, Latinx residents, and that's the yellow line at the top, were at about 200 uh, cases per 100,000 people. And this is four times higher than the rate for white residents, which you can see with the orange line. And that was at about 50 cases per 100,000 people. And it's five times higher uh, than the rate for Asian residents at 37 cases per 100,000 people, which is the blue line. Cases among black residents, the green line, at 80 per 100,000 people over this time period was also far higher than that for white and Asian residents. But as of September 13th, the case rate amongst Latino, Latina, Latinx residents, while still unfortunately consistently higher than all other groups, has decreased to 37 cases per 100,000 people. And this is now less than twice that of white residents who have a rate of 22 cases per 100,000 people compared to four times the rate uh, when compared to white people back in July. The case rate amongst black residents is now the same as that for white residents at 22 cases per 100,000 people. The case rate amongst our Asian residents continues to be the lowest at about 10 per 100,000 people. We'll take the next slide. Uh, this slide shows the average daily hospitalizations per 100,000 people by race and ethnicity. And we see similar significant declines across all groups and also a closing of the gap between Latinx and, black, and the black rate when compared to the rates for the other two groups. During the mid-July spike, which you can see clearly here, hospitalizations per 100,000 Latinx people were over three times greater than the rate for white residents. And the daily hospitalization rate among black residents was double that uh, when compared to white residents. But as of September 12th, hospitalizations among Latinx were six per 100,000 people. This has now dropped to two times the rate for white residents who had hospitalization rate of three hospitalizations per 100,000 people. Hospitalizations among black residents dropped to five per 100,000 people. Asian residents have the lowest hospitalization rate at 1.7 per 100,000 people. 
While inequities persist, the gap between Latinx residents, black residents, and other groups here too is narrowing. Uh, while the number of deaths that we've seen uh, from COVID-19 across our county is devastating, we are, as you can see on this slide, uh, fortunately seeing decreases in deaths across all race and ethnicity groups. Uh, during the July peak, the mortality rate amongst Latino, Latina, Latinx residents was six deaths per 100,000 people. This is four times the rate that was experienced at that time by white residents who had a mortality rate of 1.5 deaths per 100,000 people. The mortality rate amongst black residents in July was four deaths per 100,000, and the mortality rate amongst Asian residents was 2.7 deaths per 100,000 residents. As of September 13th, the mortality rate amongst Latinx residents decreased to two deaths per 100,000 people. It's now twice that of white residents and Asian residents, both who have a mortality rate of slightly less than one per 100,000. Similarly, the mortality rate amongst black residents decreased to a little over one per 100,000 residents. Last week, we had seen a slight increase in deaths among black residents, and we're fortunate uh, to be able to report today that the trend has started uh, to decrease again. So it's devastating that the disproportionality continues uh, to exist, and it has devastating impacts uh, among uh, communities of color. Nonetheless, I want to thank everyone who's worked really hard to address the disproportionality by uh, really extending our ability to provide both needed services and to make some policy changes so that workers are protected and families have what they need uh, to be able to uh, promote their health and the well-being of uh, all of their uh, community members uh, because they have access to the needed services uh, uh, including quarantine and isolation support, and uh, they feel that there is uh, better access to testing and health care. So I want to thank everyone. Lots of people working hard to get this gap to narrow. The next, uh, I'll take the next slide. We do also, however, look at uh, cases uh, and deaths by area poverty levels, and we see that area income has a direct correlation uh, to the number of cases. Cases per 100,000 people in areas with the most resources and the lowest le levels of poverty are far lower and have been for the entire pandemic than those in areas and communities that have higher rates of poverty and the least number of resources. While we do continue again to see decreases across all of our communities, the gaps are not closing here in a similar manner as when we looked at case rates uh, by race and ethnicity. At the July peak, cases among people living in areas with the highest poverty rates, that's the orange line at the top, were 350 cases per 100,000 people. And that was over twice the rate of people living in areas with lowest poverty levels, the blue line at the bottom, who peaked at 146 cases per 100,000 people. As of September 13th, cases amongst people living in areas with the highest po poverty levels is 78 cases per 100,000 people, and this is um, double that of uh, the case rate for people living in the areas with the most resources, although we did close the gap slightly uh, uh, between the, the communities with the highest rates of poverty and the communities with the lowest rates of poverty. Uh, we also, and I'll take the next slide, we also continue to see higher mortality rates 
among people living in areas with fewer resources, even while all groups are seeing the decreases. The gap between people in the areas with the most resources and with the fewest resources has not significantly declined. During the peak, the mortality rate amongst people living in areas with the fewest resources was 6.5 deaths per 100,000 people, and that was over three times the rate for people living in the high-resource areas. As of September 13th, the mortality rate amongst people living in areas with the fewest resources was 3.2 deaths per 100,000 people, which remains more than three times the rate of people living in the highest resource areas. So what are we doing to continue to close the gaps? And uh, I want to say um, again, uh, thank you to everybody who's been working hard uh, in this, uh, you know, sort of effort to eliminate the disproportionality. Um, and I'm, we're sorry that we have not made the progress we had hoped we would see uh, when we look at our rates among cases and deaths in those communities with high rates of poverty when compared to communities that have much lower rates of poverty. So there is still a lot of work that needs to be done to close the gaps. And this work remains uh, importantly anchored in efforts to protect workers, particularly low-wage workers who may in fact have started working uh, in, uh, when we were all safer at home, stayed working while we were all safer at home, uh, in businesses that were not able to provide uh, the appropriate uh, modifications, mostly because at the time we didn't know how important it was for people to be masked and for people to be distant. Uh, now we do know, though, uh, and so our efforts really need to continue to be to protect workers, uh, particularly those workers who go to work every single day so the rest of us have all that we need uh, to be able to go about our daily business. Um, and that's our, uh, and that's, that's where we're concentrating a lot of our efforts. I do want to note the improvements in having access to widespread testing, our partnerships with community-based organizations to make sure that everybody has the information they need to make good decisions, um, remains also anchored in an effort to close the gaps. And again, I thank all of our partners here. And now I want to update you on our, and, and you can see here where we've been successful and where we still have a lot of work to do. Um, I want to update you on our current status. I am sad to report 31 additional deaths today. Ten of the people who passed away are over the age of 80, and nine people who passed away in this age group had underlying health conditions. Fourteen people who died are between the ages of 65 and 79, and ten people in this age group who passed away had underlying health conditions. Six people who died are between the ages of 50 and 64, and five people uh, had underlying health conditions. One person who died was between the ages of 30 and 49, and this person did not have underlying health conditions. This does unfortunately bring the total number of deaths in LA County to 6,423. We're thinking every day of the many people across the county who've lost a loved one or a friend to COVID-19 and we extend our sorrow and our condolences to everyone who's experienced a loss. 92% of the people who passed away from COVID-19 had underlying health conditions. This number has remained consistent across the pandemic, throughout the entire pandemic. Remind everybody, if you have an underlying health condition, it's important that you continue to stay home, away from other people as much as possible. 
For the 6,044 people who passed away where race and ethnicity has been identified, 51% are Latinx, 23% are white, 15% are Asian, 10% are black, slightly less than 1% are Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander, and 1% identified with another race or ethnicity. We are reporting today an additional 1,265 new cases, and this brings the total number of cases in LA County to 263,333. This does include 11,615 cases reported by the City of Long Beach and 2,536 cases reported by the City of Pasadena. We're also reporting a total of 1,742 confirmed cases amongst people experiencing homelessness. 779 confirmed cases uh, are people who are currently hospitalized. 28% uh, of the people who are hospitalized are in the ICU, and 16% of people who are hospitalized are on ventilators. We have investigated a total of 1,818 residential congregate settings and non-residential settings with at least one confirmed case of COVID-19. 452 institutional investigations are ongoing, but we have closed out 1,366 investigations. This does bring the total number of confirmed cases in institutional settings to 34,574, with 17,478 of the confirmed cases being among residents and 17,096 are among staff. We're sad to report that 2,795 residents who lived in institutional settings have passed away from COVID-19. 2,512 of the residents who passed away uh, did reside in skilled nursing facilities. Of the 31 newly reported deaths today, excluding the deaths in Long Beach and Pasadena, three were deaths that were associated with people who lived at skilled nursing facilities. And again, we want to extend our thoughts and prayers with everyone who's lost someone they love to COVID-19. I'm reporting 3,693 confirmed cases at some point in the jail facilities. 3,265 were among people who are incarcerated and 428 are among staff. There's 257 cases total at the state prison. 193 were among people who are incarcerated and 64 are among staff. Uh, there are 758 cases in the federal prison facilities, 742 among people who are incarcerated, and 16 among staff. And we now have 151 cases at the juvenile facilities, 66 among staff, I mean 66 among youth, and 85 among staff. Uh, over 2.5 million people here in LA County have been tested and had their results reported uh, to us and now the positivity rate is down to 9%. Uh, in closing, I want to leave you with a slide that sums up the impact of COVID-19 on mortality across the county. The green line at the very top of this chart shows mortality for 2020 by month from January through July. The blue line, by comparison, shows the average mortality for these very same months in the years 2017 through 2019. This gives us a sense of how many deaths we would have expected monthly for this year 
if we weren't living through the pandemic. The difference between the two numbers, the numbers on the blue line and the numbers on the green line, uh, these are the numbers of deaths that we expected and the number of deaths that have occurred in 2020, is what we call excess mortality uh, that we've experienced in 2020. And the gray bars that you see at the bottom show what we call a cumulative percent increase above the expected number of deaths that occurred in 2020. And as you could see, as of July, we've experienced almost 18% more deaths than we expected due to the pandemic. In other words, when we compare the first seven months of 2020 to the first seven months of the past three years, we've observed on average 18% more deaths than we expected based on past trends. And we know that the excess deaths are not fully attributable to just people who died of COVID-19. But I do want to emphasize, especially for those who continue to believe that COVID-19 is no worse than a bad case of influenza, that this chart shows that in fact it's much worse and that we've probably had 20 to 30% more deaths in May, June, and July of 2020 than we saw in the prior three years for the same months. And while the percent increases, they may sound small, if you look at the entire LA County population, this is translated into thousands of deaths that would otherwise have not occurred. For so many people, um, over 6,000 LA County residents, um, COVID-19 resulted in death. And for so many others, tens of thousands, it resulted in serious illness. All these people, they're our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues, and our loved ones. We can all commit to doing what we can using the tools we have to slow the spread of COVID-19. It saves lives, yours and other people in our community. And I say this often, but it's worth repeating. Please remember to keep your distance of at least six feet. Always wear a cloth face covering when you're out of your home and about other people. Wash or sanitize your hands often. Get tested if you're having symptoms of COVID-19. Isolate if you're positive for the virus and quarantine if you've been a close contact for someone who's tested positive. And with that, we'll take questions. Thank you. And our first question will come from Carolyn Shelby with LA Times. Please go ahead. Colleen. Hi, thanks for taking my question. Um, I wanted to know if you had a timeline for when the county will stop uh, looking at for Labor Day data uh, related to case counts. And I was also wondering if the testing has continued to drop in LA County. I know that uh, Dr. Gailey had previously said that there had been thousands of unfilled appointments. I'm wondering if that's still true, and if so, if the county is interpreting that as something of concern or as a positive sign that people are kind of being, being that caution. Yeah, thanks so much for the questions. I'll take the first question, then I'm going to ask Dr. Galley to talk about the testing drop. Um, so, you know, we've, we know now from past experience that uh, we'll start seeing cases increase after an event or an opening, uh, usually uh, about 10 days uh, after we've started uh, with a reopening or there's been a large event. Um, and then it sometimes takes uh, another couple of weeks before we see the full impact. 
Uh, this is particularly true as we start looking at the impact on hospitalizations and then our deaths, and then on deaths, because those even lag further behind. So right now, you know, we want to wait and look at this full week of uh, testing data so we see our new case data. Uh, and that will give us a pretty good idea. That's about three weeks' worth of data. Uh, it'll give us a pretty good sense on uh, whether or not we're going to see a significant increase uh, in our cases associated with activities that may have happened over Labor Day. Uh, if we do see a significant increase in our numbers of new cases, uh, we can be pretty certain that that will be followed uh, shortly by some increases in hospitalizations, and then unfortunately usually follows that we see some increases in deaths. Um, so this is a crucial week for us in terms of you know, making sure that we're looking at our data around uh, people who have tested positive. So thanks a lot. And I'll turn it over to Dr. Galley. Hi, good afternoon. Yes, we still do have thousands of unused appointment slots at the county's operated testing sites, as well as I know at the city testing sites. We would very much encourage any LA County resident who has symptoms of COVID or who has an exposure to someone who has had COVID or even a suspected exposure to someone who has COVID to seek testing. In addition to testing among other populations like essential workers or people who live and work in high risk settings such as congregate care facilities. Uh, there's a full set of guidance for requirements for testing and populations who would be prioritized for testing on the LA County DPH website as well as on the State California Department of Public Health website. In terms of the level of concern, yes, we are concerned by that decline in testing. Testing is by no means the only way that we can combat COVID, but it is one very important part of the arsenal combined with the compliance with other basic public health practices like washing your hands and wearing your mask, your face covering and keeping your social physical distance. And we need people to continue to get testing if they do meet those criteria. It factors in, as you know, to the state's reopening plan and their tiered framework. So we would very much encourage people to get testing. Know there's appointments available through the county or city operated testing sites, as well as at a variety of private uh, partners, clinics, retail pharmacies, uh, and many other locations. We'll take the next question. Thank you. The next question will come from Patrick uh, Healy from NBC. Please go ahead. I'm sorry. Hard time getting off speaker. Thank you for um, three questions, if I may. One, if Dr. Galley could follow up. Uh, you explained very well the reason why it's important for people to get tested, but could you hazard uh, a theory why we are seeing this big decline in the number of people getting tests? Also, if you could comment on uh, the increase in the our transmission number, it appears to be getting very close to the dangerous threshold of 1.0. And a question for uh, Supervisor Solis. If she could talk a little bit about the uh, timetable for consulting with public health on further reopenings and whether she expects the board will seek input from the affected sectors and industries. Thank you much. Hi, I'll take the first two questions. Thank you for those. Uh, with respect to the reasons why people haven't been seeking testing at the same rate that they were earlier in July and August, I'm sure it's due to a variety of factors. So we do know that transmission has declined. I've reported out on the effective transmission rate in previous uh, news conferences. And that number historically over the past few weeks had been down. So there were fewer people who were being exposed, potentially fewer people who had symptoms or thought they had an exposure. So that's probably part of it. But there's many other 
other things that we know were happening at the same time. There were the wildfires, the poor air quality, people were being encouraged to stay within their homes, that probably contributed. We had a couple of weeks that were very hot, that probably also contributed to people's reluctance to venture outside and go get testing. And so again, whatever the reason was, and I'm sure there's many other reasons as well, please know that that testing is available and it is still an important thing that we need people to pursue. Uh, it's encouraging that the test positivity rate has continued to decline, as Dr. Ferrer just shared. Uh, but of course, test positivity is both reflective of what the overall actual positivity is within the community, the actual transmission, as well as the testing rate. So in order to see that test positivity rate get closer to what the true number is and continue to decline, we need the testing rate to stay high. On your second question for the R, last week I reported that the R was 0.95 with a confidence interval of 0.85 to 1.05. Uh, the R today, and the slides are located on the Department of Health Services website. Those were posted just a little bit ago. The R has increased to just above one. Uh, it's being reported as 1.02 with a confidence interval of 0.95 to 1.09. So again, anytime that R ventures above one, and this is now just above one at 1.02, it indicates that transmission is increasing over time. So again, please follow all those core public health practices. Uh, please continue to remain home as much as possible and limit interactions with those outside your household. And that mask continues to be critically important. We'll take the third part of the question from Supervisor Solis. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Patrick, for the question. Um, what I would say is that we uh, regularly speak with our public health director, um, whether it's via email or phone conversations. We will be having uh, our, our meeting uh, this coming Tuesday, and we'll be able to discuss some of these items. Um, and they're very, very, um, could I say, concerning, uh, because we know that we're waiting to see data coming back after the Labor Day weekend. So I'm very, very uh, cautious of that. And, and just want to tell people, please continue to socially distance, make sure that you are wearing your mask, and that you don't intermingle with other families that are not of the same household. Those are very, very important elements for all of us to consider. So let's, uh, let's stay steady and rely on the data as it comes forward. Thank you. Next question. One more question. Okay. The last one will come from Claudia Pasuda from um, KNX News Radio. Please go ahead. Thank you. Um, I just uh, wanted to note that on Monday, uh, Barbara, you had talked about citations issued. The information suggested there are several gyms and churches that are repeat offenders. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm still trying to get the names on that. <laughs> Excuse me, I just choked. It's not COVID. <laughs> um, also, um, if we could get the deaths among homeless people, and um, here are my two real questions. Um, you know, public health officials for years have been saying that safe sex education works better than abstinence only. So I'm wondering, after so many months of telling people to stay away from anyone outside their household and all the evidence I see on social media that people are not heeding that warning, do you still think abstinence only is the way to go here, and if so, why? And then the second question is, based on comments and, and questions that I'm getting um, from people, I think many are having a hard time understanding if the big concern here is not overwhelming the healthcare system, why the county is holding off on reopenings given that hospitalizations are so low right now. Thank you. 
Thanks a lot, Claudia. Um, we are, I think today you ought to see the names of any businesses or institutions where we've issued citations posted uh, on our website. So hopefully that, that should be going up momentarily if it hasn't already. I think we're just figuring out how to get that onto the website, where it's going to be on the website. Um, and then you should look for it getting updated on a weekly basis. Um, in terms of, of the question of abstinence only, um, in terms of sort of how we describe what we're expecting people to do, I'm not sure that's really the right analogy uh, because so many people are back at work. Uh, so many people have their children in childcare. Um, so many people are really required through their daily activities, going to the grocery store, going to their physician, uh, getting their medicines, um, you know, going shopping. Uh, so many people are intermingling. Um, so abstinence only to me is more like safer at home. When we really asked you to do absolutely nothing else unless you were an essential worker. Um, so I don't, I don't know that that's the right analogy. I think what we are doing now is like harm reduction. Like please, there are some things that we all have to do now or we all really um, need to do in terms of working, caring for children, getting our groceries. Um, but there's a whole host of other activities that are really not in that same group. They're really not as essential. And it's those non-essential activities that we've asked people uh, to please not engage in. You know, people are going to back to their houses of worship. I mean, there is just a lot of opportunity for us to be with others. So not sure I think of it as, um, as abstinence only, uh, what we're asking people to do. I think we're asking people to, to make sensible uh, decisions given that we're living in a pandemic and we're all trying to get community transmission rates as low as possible. Intermingling with lots of different people is bound to increase uh, the transmission of COVID-19. Um, and I do like your question a lot about, you know, uh, we have low rates of hospitalization, so why are we so worried? I think we're so worried because we saw what happened in July, where we had relatively low rates of hospitalizations. And within a matter of weeks, uh, we were seeing 2,200 people in the hospital, uh, so every day. So it's very easy uh, if we have increased transmission uh, for that to very quickly result in increases in hospitalizations, which then, as we saw, resulted in increases in deaths. So I think we aim to have hospitalizations uh, stay low, especially as we go into flu season, because we'll need to make sure we have capacity uh, to treat and care for people who have influenza. So, um, so I think it's, it's good explaining that when the hospitalizations uh, stay low, it's, it's not necessarily the time to say we should just do whatever we need to do at this point, reopen uh, whatever is, makes sense uh, from our perspectives as, as wanting to do more things, get more people back to work uh, without applying us the same level of caution uh, that we've been applying the last few weeks. I think we learned a lot uh, from what we all lived through uh, in July and early August. But thanks a lot. And we'll now have remarks from Supervisor Solis in Spanish. Buenas tardes. Y gracias por estar aquí hoy día con nosotros en esta conferencia de prensa. Hoy quiero hablar sobre dos cosas que han sido esenciales para nuestras comunidades, pero que también ha sido difícil de conseguir. Primero, 
Hay un nuevo estudio que analiza el impacto de la pandemia COVID-19 sobre la falta de comida en el condado de Los Ángeles. Este estudio es el primero de su clase. La doctora Kayla Dayhay, profesora asociada de medicina preventiva de USC, supervisó este estudio. La investigación de USC identificó varios datos importantes. Durante los primeros cuatro meses de la pandemia, una de cada cuatro hogares en el condado de Los Ángeles tuvo una falta de comida. Se estima que 873 mil hogares fueron impactados. La mayoría de los adultos sin su suficiente comida entre los meses de abril y julio son de bajos recursos, mujeres, latinos, africanamericanos y de 18 a 40 años de edad. Los principales factores de riesgo incluyen ser una familia de bajos recursos, estar sin trabajo y ser un padre soltero. El número de familias con acceso a comida ha subido. Subieron en abril hasta mayo de este año con unos 26% y bajo al 10% en junio y julio. Sin embargo, el número sigue siendo más alta del nivel antes de la crisis y eso nos preocupa. Las familias de bajo ingreso y las comunidades de color que son las más afectadas por la pandemia son también las que más sufren por la falta de comida. La falta de comida afecta la dieta de las personas y en este estudio se ve que las personas sufren por la falta de comida durante la pandemia tuvieron cambios no saludables en su dieta. Esto va a aumentar las disparidades en salud. Este estudio nos dice también que los programas que ofrecen fondos para ayudar a la gente están apoyando a muchas familias. Hemos in iniciado muchos programas para evitar que la gente tenga hambre durante la pandemia y eso también está ayudando. Por ejemplo, el programa del condado de nutrición para los de tercera edad ha aumentado al doble el número de comidas que se ofrece. La participación en CalFresh también subió. El estudio encontró que entre los hogares sin comida al inicio es la pandemia tenían más comida en julio que los queos que no participaron en CalFresh. Algunos de la comunidad inmigrante piensan que pedir ayuda por CalFresh se va a considerar una carga pública. Voy a decir muy claramente que la carga pública no afecta a todos los inmigrantes. Sobrevivientes de tráfico y de violencia doméstica y otros inmigrantes no son afectados. Para más información, pueden llamar a 211. El condado va a seguir ofreciendo comida gratis por entregas con el Banco Regional de Alimentos de Los Ángeles, Los Ángeles Regional Food Bank, cada semana. Además, el condado va a apoyar organizaciones comunitarias que están ofreciendo comida gratis a las personas impactadas por la pandemia. Durante la pandemia, programas de cuidado de niños han estado abiertos. El 21 de julio, la Junta de Supervisores del Condado de Los Ángeles aprobó 15 millones de fondos de la Ley CARES Act para el cuidado de niños. Estos fondos estarán disponibles a forma de cupón para ayudar a 5,000 familias de bajos recursos y trabajadores esenciales hasta el 30 de diciembre en este año. 
Las familias que son elegibles incluyen a los padres que trabajan en los servicios de atención de salud, servicios de emergencia, transporte y otros trabajos esenciales. Las familias que buscan cuidado infantil pueden solicitar un cupón por completar una aplicación en línea que se encuentra en ccala.net. Para obtener más ayuda, puede llamar usted a 888-922-4453. Quiero agradecer al Departamento de Salud Pública por establecer este programa junto con la Alianza de Cuidado de los Niños de Los Ángeles. Y le doy las gracias a los trabajadores esenciales que cuidan a los niños. Con esto me da bastante gusto presentar Jacqueline, Jacqueline Valenzuela, que les va a hablar y con más información. Gracias. Buenas tardes. Hoy vamos a proveer una actualización eh, sobre los datos que se utilizan para comprender que también estamos frenando la propagación y qué sabemos de nuestras experiencias pasadas uh, sobre los factores que influyen en el número de casos, uh, el número de hospitalizaciones y fallecimientos en toda nuestra población y entre grupos afectados de forma extremada por este virus. Hemos logrado un gran progreso en la reducción de la transmisión en el condado de Los Ángeles desde que vimos el aumento de casos, hospitalizaciones y fallecimientos a mediados de julio. Al considerar reabrir nuevamente en el futuro, eh, estamos utilizando las lecciones de nuestra, uh, nuestro pasado y los indicadores de transmisión comunitaria para guiar nuestras uh, decisiones con respecto a reabrir uh, los sectores nuevamente y las actividades que se pueden permitir. Y cuando avancemos en nuestro viaje hacia la recuperación y vuelvan a abrir sectores adicionales, seguirá siendo importante uh, comprender cómo el aumento en la interacción entre personas que no son del mismo hogar uh, afecta la transmisión comunitaria de este virus. Hoy comenzamos con una revisión de los datos que usamos para comprender si estamos desalerando la propagación de COVID-19 en el condado. Esta primera gráfica muestra los casos reportados a diario desde abril hasta esta semana. Como puede ver, los casos han disminuido eh, significativamente desde principios de agosto hasta principios de septiembre a menos de mil. Esos son números que vimos por última vez a principios de mayo antes de comenzar a reabrir nuevamente. Vimos un ligero aumento en los casos recientemente y estamos observando uh, esa, esa información de cerca, uh, especialmente porque estos aumentos ocurrieron después del fin de semana del Día del Trabajo, conocido como Labor Day. Next slide, please. La siguiente gráfica muestra nuestro porcentaje de pruebas que han dado resultados positivos. La tasa de positividad de pruebas es afectada por la cantidad de transmisión comunitaria que está ocurriendo y la disponibilidad de pruebas generalizadas. Al comienzo de la pandemia, cuando teníamos una capacidad de pruebas muy limitada, las pruebas se priorizaron para aquellos que estaban enfermos y nuestra tasa de positividad de la prueba era del 16 por ciento. 
um, bajo la orden más seguros en casa y con más disponibilidad de pruebas, nuestra tasa de positividad um, desde mediados de abril hasta mayo ha disminuido. Eh, con las reaperturas vimos aumentos uh, hasta julio y luego que volvimos a cerrar los sectores, uh, más personas tomaron precauciones uh, y aumentó nuestra capacidad de pruebas y nuestra tasa de positividad volvió a caer. Como puede ver, nuestra tasa de positividad ha caído significativamente de un promedio de alrededor del 8% en julio a alrededor del 3% en septiembre. Next slide, please. Continuamos rastreando la cantidad diaria de personas con COVID-19 que están hospitalizadas uh, para que podamos comprender el, el impacto de COVID-19 uh, en el sistema de aten atención médica. Al igual que en los dos gráficos anteriores, eh, ha habido una disminución continua en el número de pacientes de COVID-19 que están hospitalizados uh, desde finales de julio. Hemos estado por debajo de los a mil pacientes hospitalizados al día uh, durante la mayor parte de septiembre y más recientemente el condado de Los Ángeles tiene un promedio de alrededor de 750 pacientes hospitalizados por día. Estos son un poco más bajos que nuestros números a principios de abril uh, y reflejan en parte mejores tratamientos que resultan en menos días en el hospital para los pacientes. También vemos que este número disminuye cuando tenemos menos casos nuevos de COVID-19 en el condado de Los Ángeles. Next slide, please. Cuando vemos los fallecimientos diarios por causa de COVID-19, se nos recuerda que los cambios en el número de fallecimientos generalmente van por detrás de los cambios en los números de casos y hospitalizaciones. En este gráfico puede ver que el aumento en los casos que vimos a principios de julio uh, llevó a un aumento prolongado de, de fallecimientos um, desde finales de julio hasta en gran parte de agosto. Y nuevamente, aunque nos sentimos alegres de uh, ver que los fallecimientos están disminuyendo, uh, nos mantenemos alertas sabiendo que si las, los casos aumentan como resultados de las actividades del día de feriado, uh, es posible que nuevamente veamos más hospitalizaciones y fallecimientos en las próximas semanas. Eh, nuestros datos de recuperación nos ayudan a comprender a la mejor manera de avanzar de una manera segura. Next slide, please. Esto es en parte eh, uh, dictado por el Plan Estatal para una Economía Más Segura, que proporciona un marco escalonado que coloca a los condados en uno de cuatro niveles, dependiendo de los datos que miden miden el nivel de transmisión uh, comunitaria. Las opciones para la reapertura de cada sector y las uh, actividades permitidas están alineadas con cada nivel. Uh, como recordatorio, esta gráfica muestra los límites establecidos por el estado para determinar cuándo los condados pueden pasar al siguiente nivel. Next slide, please. Aunque el condado de Los Ángeles permanece actualmente en el nivel 1 con transmisión generalizada uh, en la comunidad, 
los datos publicados por el estado ayer uh, indican que hemos reducido la transmisión en la comunidad lo suficiente uh, como para comenzar a calificar para un posible cambio al nivel 2. Los datos representan números de casos y pruebas de la semana del 6 de septiembre al 12 de septiembre. Y nuestra tasa de casos diaria ajustada se redujo a 7 casos nuevos por cada 100,000 residentes. Y el porcentaje de positividad de la prueba se redujo al 2.8%. Debemos señalar que para el, que el Estado nos coloque en el nivel 2, eh, debemos, debemos mantener estos números durante dos semanas consecutivas. Uh, vimos un aumento en los casos la semana pasada, por lo que uh, estamos seguros de que tendremos, uh, no estamos seguros que tendremos otra semana en la que nuestra tasa diaria de casos sea igual o menos a siete casos por uh, cada 100,000 habitantes. Y nos consuela decirles que el condado de Los Ángeles ha alcanzado los límites que podrían permitirnos en un futuro cercano pasar al nivel 2 del plan de California para una economía más segura y continuar vigilando de cerca nuestros datos para comprender uh, que también estamos frenando la propagación de COVID-19. Um, especialmente después del día del trabajo y las reaperturas limitadas de escuelas para uh, estudiantes de alta necesidad y las reaperturas de salones de belleza y barberías para operaciones en espacios interiores. Trabajaremos con la Junta de Supervisores para tomar decisiones basadas en datos uh, sobre los, las opciones permitidas mientras estamos en el nivel 1 para reabrir otros sectores, incluidos los salones de uh, uñas para operaciones en espacios interiores. Y estamos realmente agradecidos con los residentes, los trabajadores y los negocios del Condado de, las, de Los Ángeles por hacer todo lo que han hecho uh, para ayudar a frenar la propagación de COVID-19. Next slide, please. Ahora queremos uh, darles una actualización sobre los grupos más afectados que continúan experimentando tasas disproporcionadas de casos, hospitalizaciones y fallecimientos. Este gráfico muestra a lo largo del tiempo los casos de COVID-19 por raza y etnicidad. Estas líneas muestran que con el tiempo nuestros casos están disminuyendo en todos los grupos y nos complace ver que las brechas están comenzando a cerrarse. A mediados de julio, el promedio de casos diarios entre los residentes latinos, la línea amarilla, aproximadamente 200 por cada 100,000 personas, fue aproximadamente cuatro veces más alto que el de los residentes blancos, la línea anaranjada que tenían 50 casos por cada 100,000 personas y cinco veces mayor que la de los 37 casos de residentes asiáticos por cada 100,000 personas, la línea azul. Los casos entre los residentes afroamericanos, la línea verde, eh, 80 por 100,000 personas durante este tiempo, también fueron mucho más altos que la, la de los residentes blancos y asiáticos. Desde el 13 de septiembre, la tasa de casos entre los residentes latinos, aunque consistentemente más alta que la de los otros grupos, ha disminuido a 37 casos por cada 100,000 personas. Esta, esto ahora es menos del doble que el de los residentes blancos que tienen uh, 22 casos por cada 100,000 personas. 
comparado con cuatro veces la tasa en julio. La tasa de casos entre los residentes afroamericanos es ahora la misma que la de los residentes blancos, 22 por cada 100,000 personas. La tasa de casos entre los residentes asiáticos sigue siendo la más baja, alrededor de 10 por cada 100,000 personas. Next slide, please. Esta gráfica muestra el promedio de hospitalizaciones diarias por cada 100,000 personas por raza y etnicidad. Y vemos una disminución significativa similar en los grupos y un cierre de la brecha entre la tasa de latinos y afroamericanos y la tasa de otros grupos. Durante el aumento de mediados de julio, las hospitalizaciones por cada 100,000 habitantes por cada latino fueron más de tres veces mayores que la de la tasa de residentes blancos y la tasa de hospitalización diaria entre los residentes afroamericanos fue el doble que la de los residentes blancos. Desde el 12 de septiembre, las hospitalizaciones entre los latinos eran de 6 por cada 100,000 personas, el doble que las, la de los residentes blancos, con hospitalizaciones de 3 por cada 100,000 personas. Las hospitalizaciones entre los residentes afroamericanos fueron de 5 por cada 100,000 personas. Los residentes asiáticos tienen los uh, niveles de hospitalizaciones más bajas, a 1.7 por cada 100,000 personas. Si bien persisten las desigualdades, la brecha entre los residentes latinos, los residentes afroamericanos y otros grupos se está reduciendo. Next slide, please. Si bien la cantidad de fallecimientos que hemos visto por COVID-19 en, en nuestro condado es devastadora, Afortunadamente, estamos viendo disminuciones en las muertes en todos los grupos raciales y étnicos. Durante el aumento de julio, la tasa de mortalidad entre los residentes latinos fue de 6 por cada 100,000 personas, cuatro, cuatro veces la de los residentes blancos que tenían una tasa de mortalidad de 1.5 por cada 100,000 personas. La tasa de mortalidad entre los residentes afroamericanos fue de 4 por uh, 100 mil personas y la tasa de mortalidad entre los residentes asiáticos fue de 2.7 por cada 100 mil personas. A partir del 13 de septiembre, la tasa de mortalidad entre los residentes latinos disminuyó a 2 por cada 100 mil personas, el doble que la, la de los residentes blancos y los residentes asiáticos que tienen una tasa de mortalidad de un poco menos de 1 por cada 100,000 personas. La tasa de mortalidad entre los residentes afroamericanos ha disminuido un poco, a más de uno por cada 100,000 personas. Y la semana pasada vimos un ligero aumento uh, en las muertes entre los residentes afroamericanos, pero nos alegra ver que esta semana la tendencia sigue disminuyendo. Next slide, please. Cuando vemos los casos por área de pobreza, vemos que el ingreso del área tiene, que está directamente relacionada uh, con el número de casos. Los casos por cada 100,000 uh, personas en las zonas con más recursos uh, son mucho más bajos que en las zonas con menos recursos. Si bien seguimos viendo disminuciones en todas las comunidades, uh, las brechas no se están cerrando de manera similar a cuando analizamos las tasas uh, de casos por raza y etnicidad. 
En el aumento de julio, los casos entre las personas que viven en las áreas con la pobreza más alta, la línea anaranjada, fueron 350 por cada 100,000 personas, más del doble que las personas que viven en las áreas con la pobreza más baja, la línea azul, que alcanzaron un máximo de 146 casos por cada 100,000 personas. Al 13 de septiembre, el número de casos entre las personas que viven en áreas con uh, mayor pobreza es de 78 por cada 100,000 habitantes. Es el doble que el de las personas que viven en las zonas con más recursos, aunque la brecha se cierra ligeramente con 37 casos por cada 100,000 en las comunidades con niveles más bajos de pobreza. Next slide, please. Y también, también seguimos viendo tasas de mortalidad más altas entre las personas que viven en áreas con menos recursos, incluso cuando todos los grupos están experimentando disminuciones. La brecha entre las personas en las áreas con más recursos y menos recursos no se ha disminuido significativamente. Y durante el aumento, la tasa de mortalidad entre las personas que viven en las áreas con menos recursos fue de 6.5 muertes por cada 100,000 personas, más de tres veces las de las personas que viven en áreas de altos recursos. Al 13 de diciembre, la tasa de mortalidad entre las personas que viven en las áreas con menos recursos era de 3.2 muertes por cada 100,000 habitantes, lo que sigue siendo más de tres veces mayor uh, que la de las personas que viven en las zonas con más recursos. Next slide, please. Entonces, ¿cómo estamos cerrando las brechas entre los grupos que están siendo impactados de manera desproporcionada por COVID-19? Entre los residentes latinos y afroamericanos que experimentan desigualdades, estamos cerrando las brechas en casos, hospitalizaciones y fallecimientos. Para las áreas del condado de Los Ángeles que tienen un alto nivel de pobreza, no hemos visto tanto progreso. Como mencionamos, estamos comenzando a ver un leve cierre de las brechas en los casos, pero esto no es el caso en términos de muertes. Las personas que viven en áreas con los niveles más altos de pobreza tienen tasas de mortalidad cuatro veces mayores las de las personas que viven en áreas con los niveles más bajos de pobreza. Aún queda mucho trabajo por hacer uh, para continuar cerrando estas brechas y continuar, continuaremos trabajando con nuestros socios que abordan la distribución de, de recursos que son esenciales para una mejor salud y bienestar. Y ahora para actualizarlo sobre nuestros datos de hoy, lamentamos informar 31 fallecimientos adicionales el día de hoy. Esto eleva el número total de fallecimientos a 6,423 en el condado de Los Ángeles. El 92% de las personas que han fallecido a causa de COVID-19 tenían problemas delicados de salud. De las 6,044 personas que han fallecido donde se identificó la raza de etnicidad, el 51% son latinos, el 23% son blancos, el 15% son asiáticos, el 10% son afroamericanos, menos de 1% son nativos de Hawái o de las Islas del Pacífico y el 1% se identificó con otra raza de etnicidad. Hoy también estamos uh, informando 1,265 casos nuevos. 
Esto eleva el número total a 263,333 casos en el condado de Los Ángeles. También estamos informando 1,742 casos confirmados entre personas sin hogar. Entre estos casos, 508 fueron remitidos a sitios de aislamiento y cuarentena. 779 casos confirmados están actualmente hospitalizados. El 28% de estas personas están en unidades de cuidados intensivos y el 16% están en ventiladores. El total de casos confirmados en entornos uh, institucionales es de 34,574, incluidos tanto el uh, personal como los residentes. De estos, 17,478 casos confirmados son residentes y 17,096 casos son entre personal. También nos da tristeza informar que 2,795 residentes en entornos institucionales han fallecido a causa de COVID-19. Las 2,512 personas que fallecieron residían en centros de enfermería especializada. Y hoy también reportamos 3,693 casos confirmados en algún momento en las cárceles. 3,265 entre personas que están encarceladas y 428 empleados. Hay 257 casos en la prisión estatal y 758 casos en las cárceles federales y 151 casos en las instalaciones juveniles. Más de 2.5 millones de personas se han sometido a pruebas de COVID-19 y el 9% dieron resultados positivos. Last slide, please. Para terminar, eh, nos gustaría dejarles con una gráfica que resume el impacto de COVID-19 en la mortalidad en el condado de Los Ángeles. La línea verde en esta gráfica muestra la mortalidad uh, para el año 2020 por mes, desde enero hasta julio. La línea azul en comparación muestra la mortalidad promedia para los mismos meses en los años 2017 y dos, uh, a 2019. Esto nos da una idea de cuántos fallecimientos hubiéramos esperado mensualmente para este año en ausencia de la pandemia. La diferencia entre los dos números, uh, el número de fallecimientos que esperábamos y el número de muestres, muertes que ocurrieron durante el año 2020, es el exceso de mortalidad en el 2020. Las barras, las barras grises muestran el aumento por encima de la cantidad esperada de muertes ocurridas en el 2020. Como puede ver, hasta julio hemos experimentado un 17.5% más de muertes de lo que esperábamos debido a la pandemia. En otras palabras, cuando comparamos los primeros siete meses del 2020 con los primeros siete meses de los últimos tres años, hemos observado un promedio, eh, un 17.5% más de muertes de las esperadas según las tendencias pasadas. Es posible que el exceso no sea totalmente uh, atribuido a los fallecimientos por causa de COVID-19, pero queremos enfatizar especialmente para aquellos que continúan creyendo que COVID-19 no es peor que una gripe, uh, que esta gráfica muestra es que es mucho peor 
y que hemos tenido aproximadamente entre un 20 y un 30 por ciento más de muertes en mayo, junio y julio del, 20, de, del 2020, de las que hemos visto en los últimos tres años. Si bien los aumentos pueden parecer pequeños, Uh, cuando vemos a toda la población del condado de Los Ángeles, eh, estamos hablando de miles de fallecimientos que de otro modo no habrían ocurrido. Para muchas personas, más de 6,000 residentes del condado de Los Ángeles uh, uh, han fallecido uh, o han resultado con enfermedades uh, graves y hasta la muerte. Estas personas son nuestros amigos, nuestros vecinos, nuestros colegas y nuestros seres queridos. Todos podemos comprometernos a hacer lo que podemos utilizando las herramientas que tenemos para frenar la propagación de COVID-19. Salvemos vidas, la suya, la nuestra y la de otras personas de nuestra comunidad. And now we'll go ahead and move on to, excuse me, uh, we're ready for questions. Thank you. We do have one question from Louis Trowell. Um, please state your media. Telemundo 52. Jacqueline, gracias por tomar nuestra pregunta. Eh, tiene que ver con lo que comentó la doctora Ferrer respecto a cuándo es que podrían ver estas indicaciones de que los casos han aumentado eh, del día festivo, eh, del día del trabajo. ¿Qué nos podrías decir? ¿Cuánto tiempo se demora para tener un pronóstico más eh, adecuado de si los casos tienen una tendencia de aumento? Eh, estamos hablando de días, semanas, uh -huh. y eso qué significa para llegar al próximo nivel. Sí, muchas gracias Luis por esa pregunta. Uh, basado en la que, lo que dijo la doctora, definitivamente vamos a estar viendo los datos de esta semana, uh, incluidos tal vez un, con más o menos unos 10 días o más, uh, porque tenemos que ver no solo eh, si ha aumentado la cantidad de casos, pero también si ha aumentado la cantidad de hospital, hospitalizaciones y fallecimientos. Así que vamos a estar siguiendo esa información de cerca uh, para ver si eso afecta nuestra uh, adelantarnos al al próximo nivel. Así que muchas gracias por esa, esa pregunta. Okay, so now we'll go ahead and move on to remarks in Armenian. Shnakalchun verahaskoh solisin yev ambokh verahaskich horortin. Vokeshinchoh yev arashnortoh uje zer nevirvatvutsuna Los Angeles voch chorjani benakichnerin nerayal amenamets riskita gatnavoh anzans arochutsuna paspanelu. Bari or bolorin. Շնորհակալություն մեզ միանալու համար։ Այսօր ես կներկայացնեմ ցուցանիշներ, որոնք օգտագործվում են հասկանալու համար, թե որքանով ենք մենք հաջողակ տարածումը դանդաղեցնելու համար, եւ այն ինչ մենք գիտենք մեր անցյալ փորձից, այն գործոնների մասին, որոնք ազդում են դեպքերի հոսպիտալացման եւ մահվան դեպքերի թիվը ամբողջ բնակչության շրջանում։ Հուլիսի կեսին դեպքերի հոսպիտալացման եւ մահվան դեպքերի մեծ ալիք զգալուց իվեր մենք մեծ առանջտած են գրանցել նվազացնելով փոխանցումը Los Angeles շրջանում եւ երբ մենք վերականգնման ճանապարհին ենք լրացուցիչ հատվածներ վերաբացելու համար կարևոր է հասկանալ թե ինչպես է ընտանիքում չափող անդամների ազդեցությունը վիրուսը համայնքային փոխանցման վրա Ապրիլից միջև այս շափատ գրանցված դեպքերը զգալիորեն նվազել են Եվ օգոստոսի սկզբից միշտ սեպտեմբերի սկիզբը հասել են հազարի։ Դրանք թվեր են, որոնք մենք վերջին անգամ տեսել ենք մայսի վերջին, նախքան մեր վերաբացումը սկսելը։ Վերջերս մենք նկատեցինք դեպքերի մի փոքր աճ, 
որոնք մենք ուշադիր հետևում ենք մանավանդ այն աճը տեղ ունեցավ աշխատանքային օրվա հանգստյան օրերից հետո տոկոսային դրականությունը ապրիլից սեպտեմբեր 13-ը ցույց է տալիս մեր տոկոսային փորձարկումների դրականությունը կամ կատարված տեստերի տոկոսը որոնք դրական են տեստի դրական արդյունքի վրա ազդում են համայնքային փոխանցման աստիճանը եւ համատարած տեստավորման արկայությունը համաճարակի սկզբում երբ մենք շատ ցամանափակ ունակություն ունենք տեստավորման տեստերը առաջնային են հիվանդների համար եւ մեր տեստի դրականությունը կազմում է 16 տոկոս տնային պայմաններում ավելի անվտանգ պատվերների եւ փորձարկման մեծ կարողությունների պայմաններում մեր փորձարկման դրականությունը փոխվել է ապրիլի կեսերից միջև մայիս վերաբացումների արդյունքում մենք հուլիս ամսվա կտրվածքով աճեր տեսանք այնուհետև հատվածները փակվելուց ավելի շատ մարդիկ նախազգուշացվեցին եւ կրկնապատկվեցին մեր տեստավորման կարողությունները եւ մեր տեստային դրականությունը կրկին ընկավ ինչպես տեսնում ենք մեր դրականության աստիճանը զգալիորեն ընկել է հուլիս ամսվա մոտ ավորապես 8 տոկոսից միջև սեպտեմբեր ամսվա մոտ 3 տոկոս հոսպիտալացված կովիդ-19 հիվանդների օրական քանակը նվազել է։ Մենք շարունակում ենք հետևել կովիդ-19-ի հիվանդ մարդկանց օրական հոսպիտալացման թվին, որպեսզի կարողանանք հասկանալ կովիդ-19-ի ազդեցությունը առողջապահական համակարգի վրա։ Հուլիսի վերջից ի վեր հոսպիտալացված կովիդ-19 հիվանդների թիվը շարունակական անկում է նկատվում սեպտեմբերի մեծ մասի ընթացքում մենք օրեկան հոսպիտալացված 1000 հիվանդից ցածր ենք եղել եւ վերջին շրջանում օրեկան միջինը կազմում է շորջ 750 հոսպիտալացված հիվանդ դրանք մի փոքր ավելի ցածր են քան ապրիլի սկզբին գրանցված մեր թվերը եւ մասամբ արտացոլում են ավելի լավ բուժումներ որոնք հագեցնում են հիվանդանոցում մնալու ավելի կարճ տեղողություն Մենք նաև տեսնում ենք, որ այս թիվը նվազում է, երբ վարչաշրջանում ավելի քիչ ունեն COVID-19-ով նոր դեպքեր։ Ներկա իրավիճակը հետևյալն է։ Այսօր ցավով հայտնում ենք եւս 31 մահվան մասին։ Այս մարտկանցից 10-ը 80 տարեկանից բարձր էին, որոնցից 9-ը ունեցել են ուղեկցող առողջական խնդիրներ։ 14-ը 65 տարեկանից 79-ը, որոնցից 10-ը ունեցել են ուղեկցող առողջական խնդիրներ։ 6 անձի տարիքը 50-ից 64-ն է եւ 5-ը ունեցել են ուղեկցող առողջական խնդիրներ։ 1 անձի տարիքը 30 տարեկանից 49-ն է եւ այդ անձը չի ունեցել ուղեկցող առողջական խնդիրներ։ Սա բերում է մահերի թիվը 6423-ի Լոս Անջելոս շրջանում։ Էթնիկ պատկանելությունը հետևյալն է։ 51 տոկոսը լատինո լատինեքս, 23 տոկոսը սպիտակ, 15 տոկոսը ասիական, 10 տոկոսը աֆրոամերիկացիներ, 1 տոկոսը բնիկ հավայան, 1 տոկոսը մեկալ ռասա էթնիկ խումբ։ COVID-19-ով մահացած անձանց 92 տոկոսը ուներ ուղեկցող առողջական խնդիրներ, ինչը կարևորում է այն անձանց, ովքեր առողջության լուրջ խնդիրներ ունեն, մնալ տանը եւ հնարավորինս խուսափել սերտ կապերից։ 
այսօր մենք հայտնում ենք 1265 նոր դեպքերի մասին։ Սա բերում է Լոս Անջելոս շրջանի դրական դեպքերի ընդհանուրթիվը 263333-ի։ Այս դեպքերը ներառում են Լոնգ Բիչ քաղաքում մեր գործընկերների կողմից գրանցված 11615 դեպքեր, իսկ Փասիդնա քաղաքի կողմից գրանցված 2536 դեպքեր որոնք ունեն անկախ առողջապահական բաժանմունքներ։ Մենք հայտնում ենք 1742 հաստատված դեպք անոթևան ապրող մարդկան շրջանում։ Ապաստան գտած 508 անց պատշաճ կերպով մեկուսացված են, իսկ սերտ կապերը կարանտինացված։ Ներկայումս հոսպիտալացվել են 779 մարդ, որոնցից 28% գտնվում են ինտենսիվ խնամքի բաժանմունքում, իսկ 16% միացված են շնչարական օթափոխիչների։ Կնություններ են կատարվում 1818 ինստիտությոնալ բնակչության հաստատություններում։ Դրանց թվում են ծերանոցներ, ապաստաններ, բուժման կենտրոններ, ոժանդակվող բնակելի հաստատություններ և Այս դեպքերից 17478-ը բնակիչներ են և 1096-ը աշխատակազմ։ Ձավով ենք հայտնում, որ 2795 մարդ, ովքեր ապրում են ինստիտությունալ պայմաներում, մահացել են COVID-19-ից։ Ինստիտությունալ միջավայրում բնակվող Մենք ծավում ենք այս կորոստի համար։ Զեկուցում ենք, որ հաստատված 3693 դեպքեր արձանագրվել են կրյակ ատարողական հիմնարկներում։ 3265 տատապարձյալ և 428 աշխատակազ։ 257 դեպք նհանգային բանտերում, 193 բանտարկյալ և 64 աշխատակազ։ 758 դեպք վեդերալ բանտերում, 742 բանտարկյալ և 16 աշխատակազ։ 151 դեպք անչապահասների հաստատություններում, 66 բանտարկյալ և 85 աշխատակազ։ Եվ լոսանջոր շրջանի արձանագրված բոլոր նոր դեպքերի զեկույցը ավելի կան 2,5 միլոն մարդ տեստավորվել են և արդյունքները զեկուցվել են լոսանջելո շրջան, որոնցից 9% դրական են։ Կուծ եմ ահերը լիովին չեն վերագրվում կովիտ 19 մահվան դեպքերին, բայց ուզում եմ շեշտել հատկապես նրանց համար, ովքեր Հաստը այն է, որ դա շատ ավելի վատ է, որ մենք ունեցել ենք մոտավուրապես 20-30 տոքոսով ավելի շատ մահեր։ 2020 թվականի մայսին, հունիսին և հուլիսին կանց տեսել ենք նախորդ երեկ տարիների ընթացքում։ Չնայած տոքոսների աչը կարող է փոքրթվալ լոսանջելոր շրջանի ամբողջ բնակչության կանակի համար, բայցա հազարավոր մահեր են, որոնք այլապես չեն լինի։ լոսանջոր շրջանի ավելի կան 6000 բնակիչներ 
COVID-19 հանգեցրելը լուրջ հիվանդության եւ մահվան։ Այս մարտիկ մեր ընկերներն են, մեր հարևաններն են, մեր գործընկերներն են եւ մեր սիրելիներն են։ Մենք բոլորս կարող ենք եւ պարտավոր են կատարել այն, ինչ կարող ենք օգտագործելով մեր ունեցած գործիքները դանդաղեցնելու COVID-19-ի տարածումը։ Դա կյանքերը փրկում։ Ես դա հաճախ եմ ասում, բայց արժե կրկնել, հիշեք խնդրում եմ, ֆիզիկական հերավորությունը պահեք առնվազը 6 ոտնաչափ եւ կրեք դեմքի ծածկոց, երբ տանից դուրս եք այլ մարդկան շրջապատում։ Հաճախակի լվացեք կամ ախտահանեք ձեռքերը։ Տեստավորվեք, եթե COVID-19-ը ախտանիշներ ունեք, մեկ ուսացրեք, եթե դրական է COVID-19-ով եւ կարանտինացվեք, եթե եղել եք եւ շփվել եք COVID-19-ի դրական մարդկանց հետ։ Տեստերի փոփոխություններ։ Եվ վերջապես ես ուզում եմ նշել, որ պետությունը փոխել է իր ուղեցույցը այն մասին, թե մարդկանց որ խմբերն են առաջնահերթ տեստավորման համար։ Հուլիսին նրանք խմբեր էին բաժանել տեստավորման եւ առաջնահերթը այն մարդիկին, ովքեր հոսպիտալացվել են COVID-19-ի ախտանիշներով, ովքեր կապված էին բռնկումների հետ։ Դրանց հետո նրանք առաջնահերթություն տվեցին ախտանիշներով մարդկանց հատկապես լուրջ հիվանդության ավելի մեծ ռիսկի ենթարկվողներին վիրուսային դրական ազդեցություն ունեցող անձի հետ ծերտ շփում ունեցող մարդկանց բարձր ռիսկային իրավիճակներում աշխատող մարդկանց առողջապահության ոլորտի աշխատողներին եւ ովքեր ապրում եւ աշխատում են հավաքական պայմաններում եւ այնուհետեւ պետությունը գերադասեց տեստավորել այն մարդկանց ովքեր աշխատում են հասարակության հետ փող հարաբերություններ ունենալու պայմաններում եւ վերջապես ասիմպտոմատիկ մարդկանց ովքեր անհանգստանում էին որ հնարավոր է վիրուսով հիվանդ լինեն երեք նրանք հրահանգ տվեցին որ այս բոլոր խմբերը այժմ հավասարապես առաջնահերթեն փորձարկման համար քանի որ փորձարկումների արդյունքների շրջա դարձային ժամանակահատվածում բարելավվել են շրջանները։ Այժմ մենք աշխատում ենք մեր առողջապահության պետության նոր ուղեցույցների համապատասխանեցնելու եւ շուրջ տեղեկանք նկատողարումների ապահովելու համար։ Շնորհակալություն։ Thank you. Now the remarks in Korean. Անյաշիմնիկա։ 7월 중순에 우리는 LA 카운티에서 케이스 수와 병원 입원자 수 그리고 사망자 수 증가를 경험하면서 확산을 줄이기 위해서 많은 진전을 해왔습니다. 앞으로의 영업 재개를 생각해 볼때 우리는 지난 일에서 교훈 점을 배우고 앞으로 재개하는 사업체와 허가되는 활동들에 관한 결정을 내릴 때이 점을 적용할 것입니다. 가족이 아닌 사람들과 섞여 있는 것이 어떻게 커뮤니티 내에서 바이러스 확장에 영향을 미치는지 아는 것은 매우 중요합니다. 4월부터 이번 주까지 1일 케이스 수를 보면 8월 초에서 9월 초까지의 케이스 수가 1000개 미만으로 줄어들었고 이 수치는 지난 5월 초에 재개를 시작했을 때와 비슷한 수치입니다. 최근에 케이스 수가 약간 올랐었는데 특히 네이버데이 주말 후로 약간 증가했었습니다. 양성 확중률은 커뮤니티에 얼마나 확산이 되어 있는지 그리고 테스트가 얼마나 이용 가능한지에 따라서 영향을 받습니다. 팬데믹 초기에 테스트를 할수 있는 용량이 제한되어 있었기 때문에 이미 아픈 사람에게만 우선적으로 테스트를 함으로써 확중률이 16%였습니다. 
테스트 용량이 점점 늘어나면서 4월 중순에서 5월에 확진률이 줄어들었다가 7월에 양성, 어, 영업 재개와 함께 증가가 되었고 다시 영업을 폐쇄하면서 테스트 양성 확진률이 다시 줄어들었습니다. 7월에 현재 확진률은 8%에서 9월에는 3%로 현저히 줄어든 상태입니다. 7월 말에서부터 병원에 있는 코비드 19 환자 수는 계속 줄어들고 있습니다. 9월 동안 1일 입원자 수는 1,000명 미만이었고 최근에는 평균 750명이 입원해 있는 상태입니다. 이 수치는 4월 초보다도 낮은 수치이고 더 나은 치료 방법으로 인해서 병원 입원을 해야 하는 날짜의 수가 줄어들었음을 볼수 있습니다. 코비드로 인한 1일 사망률을 보면 7월 초에 케이스 수가 올라갔었는데 이것이 7월 말과 8월까지의 사망률 증가로 이어진 것을 볼수 있습니다. 사망률이 내려가는 것을 보는 것은 다행이지만 네이벌데이 활동으로 인해서 케이스 수가 올라가면 병원 입원자 수와 사망률이 그 후에 주에 올라갈 수 있다는 것입니다. LA 카운티는 현재 1단계에 머물러 있는데 어제 주정부에서 게시한 수치에 따르면 우리는 이제 2단계로 넘어갈 수 있는 자격을 갖추게 되었습니다. 1일 케이스 수는 10만 명당 7케이스였고 테스트 확중률은 2.8로 내려갔습니다. 주정부에서 제시한 2단계로 가기 위해서는 2주 연속 이 수치를 유지해야 하는데 지난주에 케이스 수가 약간 증가해서 어, 케이스률이 10만 명당 7케이스 미만으로 한 주간 더 유지할 수 있는지는 현재 알수 없습니다. 네이버데이 공휴일 후에 또한 필요한 학생들을 위해 학교를 재개한 후에 또 미용실의 실내 운영을 재개한 후에도 얼마나 효율적으로 코비드 1 9 확산을 늦추고 있는지를 데이터를 유심히 모니터하게 될 것입니다. 1단계에 있으면서 네일 샵이 실내 영업을 재개할 수 있는지 보드와 함께 결정을 하게 될 것입니다. 코비드 1 9 확산을 늦추기 위해 노력하시는 LA 카운티의 모든 주민분들과 직원분들 또 사업체들에게 감사드리는 바입니다. 인종과 민족성과 관련된 케이스 수치를 보면 시간이 흐르면서 모든 그룹의 케이스 수가 줄어들고 있고 또그 간격 또한 줄어들고 있습니다. 9월 13일까지 라틴 계열 주민의 케이스류를 보면 다른 그룹보다는 여전히 높지만 10만 명당 37 케이스 수로 줄어드는 것을 볼수 있습니다. 이 수치는 백인, 주변의, 백인 주민의 10만 명당 22 케이스보다 2배 미만 높은 수치인데 7월에는 그 수치가 3배, 4배 이상 사, 차이가 났었습니다. 흑인 주민의 케이스류는 백인과 같은 10만 명당 22 케이스이고 동양민, 동양인 주민들은 10만 명당 10 케이스로 가장 낮은 수치입니다. 민족과 인종에 따른 평균 1일 병원 입원자 수를 비교해 보면 9월 12일까지 라틴 계열 중에 병원 입원자 수는 10만 명당 6명, 백인은 10만 명당 3명, 흑인은 10만 명당 5명이었습니다. 동양인 주민은 10만 명당 1.7명으로 가장 낮은 수치입니다. 아직 불공평하지만 라틴 계열과 흑인 주민들 그리고 다른 그룹의 간격들이 점점 줄어들고 있습니다. 인족과 민족 간의 코비드로 인한 사망률을 비교해보면 
9월 13일까지 라틴계 주민들의 사망률은 10만 명당 2명으로 줄어들었고 백인과 동양인 주민들은 10만 명당 1명보다 낮은 사망률이고 비슷하게 흑인 주민은 10만 명당 1명보다 조금 높은 사망률이었습니다. 그러므로 이번 주에도 이 모든 수치가 줄어들고 있는 추세입니다. 지역 빈곤 수준을 보면 지역 임금 수준이 케이스 수와 밀접한 관계가 있음을 보게 됩니다. 리소스가 많은 지역의 케이스 수는 리소스가 없는 지역보다 매, 매우 낮은 수치였습니다. 리소스가 많이 없는 지역에 사는 사람들의 사망률과 리소스가 많은 지역에 사는 사람들의 사망률의 간격은 크게 줄어들지 않고 있습니다. 불평등을 경험하고 있는 라틴 계열과 흑인 주민들 중에 케이스 수와 병원 입원자 수 그리고 사망률의 간격은 줄어들고 있습니다. 그러나 빈곤 수준이 높은 지역에서는 큰 진전을 보지 못하고 있습니다. 케이스류의 간격은 줄어들고 있지만 사망률과 관련해서는 그렇지 않습니다. 빈곤 수준이 높은 지역에 사는 사람들이 그렇지 않은 지역보다 사망률이 4배 더 높은 것을 보게 됩니다. 이 간격을 줄이기 위해서 우리가 아직 해야 할 일들이 많이 있습니다. 이 불평등한 리소스와 기회의 분배의 문제와 관련해서 이것을 바로잡기 위해 계속해서 여러 파트너들과 노력을 해야 할 것입니다. 이제 데일리 리포트를 말씀드리겠습니다. 유감스럽게도 코로나 바이러스로 인해 추가로 31명의 사망자가 보고되었습니다. 이중 10명은 83, 80세 이상이고 이중 9명은 이미 질환을 가지고 있었습니다. 14명은 65에서 79세 사이이고 이중 10명은 이미 질환을 가지고 있었습니다. 6명은 50에서 64세 사이이고 이중 5명은 이미 질환을 가지고 있었습니다. 1명은 30에서 49세 사이였습니다. 이로써 로스앤젤레스 카운티에서의 총 사망자 수는 6,423명입니다. 코로나 바이러스로 인해 사망한 분들 중에 92%가 이미 질환을 가지고 있었습니다. 인종과 민족성이 알려진 6,044명의 사망자 중에 51%는 라틴 계열, 23%는 백인, 15%는 동양인, 10%는 흑인, 1% 미만은 하와이 태평양섬 원주민, 1%는 기타 인종이었습니다. 오늘로써 1,265건의 새로운 확진 케이스가 보고되었습니다. 이로써 로스앤젤레스 카운티에서의 총 확진 케이스 수는 26만 3,333건입니다. 이 수치는 롱비치시에서 1만 1,615건, 파사디나시에서 2,536건이었고 이두 시는 각 보건부가 따로 있음을 알려드립니다. 노숙자들 가운데 확진 케이스는 1,742건입니다. 이들 중 508명은 보호소에서 고립되어 있었고 미적 접촉자는 격리되었습니다. 현재 779명이 양성 확진자로 병원에 입원해 있으며 이중 28%는 중환자실에 있고 16%는 인공호흡기에 의존해 있습니다. 하나 이상의 확진 케이스가 나온 총 1,818개의 거주시설과 비거주시설을 조사하였으며 이중 452개는 현재 조사 중이고 1,366개는 조사를 마쳤습니다. 시설에서의 총 확진 케이스 수는 34,574건이고 이중 17,478명은 거주자이며 17,096명은 일하는 사람들입니다. 시설에 사는 사람들 중에 사망자 수는 2,795명이고 이중 2,512명은 전문 간호시설에 살고 있었습니다. 
오늘 발표된 31명의 사망자 중에 3명, 즉 10%는 전문 간호시설 관련 사망 케이스입니다. 교도시설에서는 총 3,693건의 확진 케이스가 있었고 이중 3,265명은 수감자였으며 428명은 일하는 사람들입니다. 지금까지 LA보건부로 250만 건 이상이 코로나 바이러스 테스트를 받은 것으로 보고되었으며 이중 9%는 양성 결과였습니다. 끝으로 카운티에서 코로나19로 인한 사망률에 대해서 잠시 말씀드리고자 합니다. 2017년부터 2019년까지 1월에서 7월까지의 평균 사망률과 2020년 같은 달들의 사망률을 비교해보면 7월에 판다믹으로 인해 7.5% 더 높은 사망률이 있었음을 보게 됩니다. 이 추가 사망률은 모두 코로나 바이러스로 인한 것은 아니지만 아직도 코로나19가 독감보다 그리 나쁘지 않다고 믿고 있는 사람들에게 사실 이 수치는 올해 5월, 6월, 7월에 있었던 사망률이 지난 3년간의 수치보다 거의 20에서 30%가 더 많은 죽음을 초래했다는 것을 알려주는 것입니다. 이 증가한 퍼센트지가 작아 보이지만 LA 카운티에 있는 전체 주민 수로 비교해 볼때 이것은 몇 천명의 사람들이 필요 이상으로 더 많이 사망했다는 뜻입니다. 6천 명이 넘는 LA 카운티 주민들에게 COVID-19는 심각한 질병과 죽음을 초래하였습니다. 이것은 우리의 친구들, 이웃들, 동료들, 또 사랑하는 사람들의 사망이었습니다. 우리가 할수 있는 한 가지고 있는 모든 도구들을 사용해서 COVID-19의 확산을 늦추기 위해 노력해야 할 것입니다. 이것은 우리의 생명과 커뮤니티에 있는 다른 사람들의 사람들을 살릴 수 있는 방법입니다. 어, 이 말씀을 계속 드리고 있지만 꼭 기억하십시오. 적어도 6피트 이상 신체적 거리 두기를 유지하고 집 밖에서 다른 사람 곁에 있을 때꼭천 얼굴 가리개를 사용하십시오. 손을 자주 씻거나 소독제를 사용하십시오. 코비드19의 증상이 있다면 테스트를 받으십시오. 바이러스의 양성 결과이면 자가 고립을 하십시오. 양성인 사람들과 밀접한 접촉이 있었다면 꼭 자가 격리를 하십시오. 마지막으로 주정부에서는 누가 먼저 테스트를 받아야 하는지에 관한 지침을 약간 수정하였습니다. 7월에 우리는 코비드19 증상으로 병원에 입원한 사람들과 발병이 관련되어 있던 사람들을 최우선적으로 테스트를 받도록 하였습니다. 그 다음은 증상이 있는 사람들, 특히 신박한 질병에 걸릴 확률이 높은 사람들, 바이러스 양성 확증자와 밀접한 접촉이 있었던 사람들, 그리고 의료서비스 종사자나 모여있는 상황에서 살고 있는 사람이나 일하는 사람들을 테스트하였습니다. 그 다음에는 일반 대중과 교류가 있는 상황에서 일하는 사람들, 그리고 그 다음에는 무증상이지만 바이러스에 노출됐을지 모르는 염려가 있는 사람들 순서로 테스트를 받았습니다. 어제 주정부에서는 모든 사람들이 공평하게 테스트를 받을 수 있다고 지침을 발표했는데 왜냐하면 주 전체에서 테스트 결과를 받을 수 있는 시간이 개선되었기 때문입니다. 우리는 주정부의 새로운 지침에 따라서 카운티에서의 지침도 이에 맞춰 조정할 것입니다. 감사합니다. Now Ellen Chang will brief in Mandarin. Thank you. 感谢多少委员
索尼斯女士和全体督查委员，您为保护全县人民，尤其是那些高风险人群的健康所做的努力，是为我们指明了方向，是对我们的激励。各位下午好，感谢各位参加我们的发布会。今天我会为大家提供一些关键指标的一些更新。这些指标是帮助我们理解我们是如何控制该病毒的传播的。通过各种数据，包括病例、住院及死亡数据的分析，找出相关的影响因素。这些数据涉及全民，也有着重于不同群体所受不同影响方面的数据。自七月以来，我们经历过如病例、住院及死亡人数的爆发期。我们在前线所做的预防病毒传播已取得了很大的进步。当我们为未来重启计划着想时，我们将吸取过去的经过去的经验，并充分利用社区传播方面的参数来决定那些哪个部分可以重开，哪些活动可以重启。当我们制定这些重启计划时，我们时刻牢记着不同的家庭成员之间的互动。会增加，会带来给病毒的传播增加一些风险。康复的一方面的数据，好，我们先看看康复方面的一些参数群，以便我们了解是否可以让 COVID-19 病毒的传播减缓了。第一个，每日病例及七天平均值的图形。这个图形显示，从四月到这刚刚过去的这个星期，每日病例的增加。从图形上可以看出，从八月初开始到九月初，每日新增的病例急剧下降，到达了一千以下。这一数据是我们在五月重启时所见到的数据。我们正在严密监视最近有稍有抬头的病例，尤其注意到这可能与刚刚过去的劳工节有关。这些图显示阳性病例所占测试的样本的比率，呈阳性的比率会受会受到社区传播程度和测试能力的影响。在病情开始时，我们的测试能力有限，测试仅给那些生病的人才能提供，因此我们的呈阳率是百分之十六之高。在居家临床出台后，而且随着测试能力的增加，从四月中旬到五月重启后，成阳率又有所增加。只有重启后，成阳率又有所增加。到七月之后，我们重新关闭了一些部分商业，增加了测试能力，而且随着人们更加小心。成阳率又开始下降，可以看出，成阳率从七月的百分之八降到了九月的百分之三。Next slide， 下一个，新冠病人每日住院人数，我们通过每日跟踪新冠病人的住院人数，以便理解新冠病毒给我们的医院系统带来的影响，与前面两个图类似。新冠病人每日住院人数从七月末也这一直在下降。进入九月后，大部分时间新冠病人的住院人数都低于一千，尤其是最近落线的新冠病人住院人数
保持在每天750人左右，这一数据甚至比四月初还要略低，也表明了随着治疗技术的成熟，病人的住院天数也逐渐缩短。当然，这一数据的下降也反映了洛县的每一日今天病例在减少。Next one, please。每日死亡人数及七天平均值。当我们观察每日死亡人数的趋势图时，我们一定要记住这些数据。较每日新增病例和每日住院人数，那要来得迟缓。大家可以从图形中看出，七月初的病例病情爆发，造成了七月末死亡人数的大量增加。我要再次强调，尽管我们乐于见到死亡人数的持续下降，但是我们仍要保持高度警惕。劳工节后。所带来的病例的增加，也许会给住院人数和死亡人数在未来几星期内带来增加。下面我为大家更新一下每日每一每日简报。很不幸，我们今天有三十亿人因新冠病毒去世，其中十人是八十岁以上的长者，这中间九人是患有其他疾病，十四人。的年龄介于六十五岁到七十九岁之间，其中十人患有其他疾病；六人的年龄介于五十到六十四岁之间，之间其中五人患有其他疾病；一人的年龄介于三十岁到四十九岁之间，这人没有其他疾病。这样，洛杉矶县总死亡人数就达到了六千四百二十三。我们。与那些同因新冠病毒失去亲人和朋友的大的人们、家庭，我们与你们在一起。因新冠病毒去世人中，百分之九十人的患者都患有其他疾病，这一比率自疫情爆发以来相对稳定。因新冠病毒去世人中有六千零四十四人的逐一背景已分类，分类的结果如下。拉丁裔占百分之五十一，白人占百分之二十三，亚洲人占百分之十五，非洲非裔占百分之十，夏威夷和太平洋群岛原住民占比例不足百分之一，还有百分之一属于其他族裔。我们今天新添一千两百六十五病例，通常星期三的新增病例要略高，这是因为有些是周末病例归纳到星期三。这样，洛杉矶县的总病例的人数就达到了二十六万三千三百三十三例。这些数据包括从长长滩市来的一万一千六百一十五例，还有帕萨迪纳市报来的两千五百三十六例。这两个市都有自己独立的公共卫生部门。我们有一千七百四十二人。的病例属于无家可归的人群，其中五百零八人已进行了隔离和检疫，这一过程会持续到他们康复。现在确诊新冠病例患者人数的数量是七百七十九人，其中百分之二十八的人住在加护病房，百分之十六的人使用呼吸机。我们对一千八百一十八个大型住宅和非住宅机构做了调查，这些机构中均有至少一个是已知
新冠病毒患者，其中四百五十二个人在调查中，一千三百六十六个已经结束了调查。机构确诊病例的总数为三万四千五百一十四人，其中居民占一万七千四百七十八人，工作人员占一万七千零九十六人。我们。非常承同，因新冠病毒去世人中有两千七百九十五人来自机构诊所，而其中有两千五百一十二人来自于手里护理机构。在今天新添的三十一例死亡人数中，当然不包括长滩市的三人，其中有三人来自于手里护理机构。我们再次为那些因新冠病毒失去亲人的朋友送去我们的诚挚的问候。所有监禁场所的确诊病例为三千六百九十三人，其中三千二百六十五人为囚犯，四百二十八人为管教人员。加州的监狱有两百五十七例，其中一百九十三人为囚犯，六十四人为管教人员。联邦监狱有七百五十八例。其中七百四十二例为囚犯，十六人为管教人员。少年管教所有一百五十一例，其中六十六例为少年，八十五人为管教人员。诺县已经有超过两百五十万的居民进行了新冠病毒测试，并上报了测试结果，测试的阳性率为百分之九。格外的死亡 ，one more slide。结束前，我想谈谈新冠病毒给全洛杉矶县带来的格外死亡人数。头中的绿线代表2020年1月到7月的死亡率，作为对比的蓝线代表同月的2017年到2019年的死亡率。这一比较会给我们一个大概的结果：如果没有新冠病毒，我们的死亡率会是多少？会比现在少多少？两种曲线所代表的数据的差额，就是因为新冠病毒的额外死亡造成的。图中灰色的头型，灰色的图形代表2020年以来超出预期死亡的累积值。大家可以看出，由于新冠病毒死亡率累计增加了 17.5% 换句话说， 2 0 2 0年头七个月的死亡率较前三年的头七个月的平均值比较。多出了百分之十七点五，所有这些格外的死亡，也许不能完全归功于归咎于新冠病毒，但这足以给我们中间的一些人认为新冠病毒不过是另外一种流感的人数提供警示。事实上，新冠病毒比流感要严重的多。从头型中可以看出，二零二零年五月、六月和七月，多出百分之二十到三十的死亡归咎于新冠病毒。尽管这个百分比似乎不大，但换算成人数就很多了。前洛杉矶县有超过六千人因新冠病毒失去了生命，造成了或造成了严重疾病。这些人是我们的朋友，是我们的同事，是我们的邻居，是我们的挚爱。我在这里呼吁大家一起努力，充分利用一切工具来减缓新冠病毒的传播。这样做，我们是在拯救生命。我们社区中的你和我，我们在这里要反复的强调，大家一定要
在外出时与其他人相聚时保持物理距离，并佩戴口罩；二、经常洗手或或用消毒仪擦手；三、如果出现 COVID-19 症状，一定要去测试；如果测试呈阳性，一定要隔离；五、如果与阳性患者有亲密接触，一定要进行防疫。最后，我要谈谈测试的变化。我要告诉大家，州政府就优先测试群体的指南做了做了变更。在七月份的指南中，州政府将人群的测试优先分各各个等级，那些因新冠病毒住院的人群和那些与爆发有关的人群得到了优先测试，然后其后的优先是带症状的病人，尤其是高危人群。与阳性患者有过亲密接触的人群，及那些在高危环境中工作的人群，及医护人员和住在群居住所的人民。然后后面的优先的人群就是那些有与公众有接触的人群，最后是那些认为自己可能已被感染的人群。从昨天开始，所有以上的人群都变成具有同样的优先等级。因为前加州的测试能力和测试结果出来的时间都有极大的改善。本县正对照州政府新的测试指南，优先顺序进行我县的指南的修改。That concludes for today. Thank you. This episode of LA Public Health was produced by the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Our department is nationally accredited by the Public Health Accreditation Board and is committed to protecting and improving the health of over 10 million residents in Los Angeles County. For more information about DPH programs and services, visit publichealth.lacounty.gov and follow us on social media at LA Public Health. My name is Steve Baldwin, and you've been listening to the LA Public Health podcast.